For most of us, failure comes with baggage, a lot of baggage, that I believe is traced directly back to our days in school. From a very early age, the message is drilled into our heads. Failure is bad. Failure means you didn't study or prepare. Failure means you slacked off or, worse, aren't smart enough to begin with. Thus, failure is something to be ashamed of. This perception lives on long into adulthood, even in people who have learned to parrot the oft-repeated arguments about the upside of failure. How many articles have you read on that topic alone? And yet, even as they nod their heads in agreement, many readers of those articles still have the emotional reaction that they had as children. They just can't help it. That early experience of shame is too deep-seated to erase. All the time in my work, I see people resist and reject failure and try mightily to avoid it because regardless of what we say, mistakes feel embarrassing. There is a visceral reaction to failure. It hurts. We need to think about failure differently. I'm not the first to say that failure, when approached properly, can be an opportunity for growth. But the way most people interpret this assertion is that mistakes are a necessary evil. Mistakes aren't a necessary evil. They aren't evil at all. They are an inevitable consequence of doing something new, and as such, should be seen as valuable. Without them, we'd have no originality. And yet, even as I say that embracing failure is an important part of learning— I also acknowledge that acknowledging this truth is not enough. That's because failure is painful, and our feelings about this pain tend to screw up our understanding of its worth. To disentangle the good and the bad parts of failure, we have to recognize both the reality of the pain and the benefit of the resulting growth. Left to their own devices, most people don't want to fail. But Andrew Stanton isn't most people. As I've mentioned, he's known around Pixar for repeating the phrases fail early and fail fast and be wrong as fast as you can. He thinks of failure like learning to ride a bike. It isn't conceivable that you would learn to do this without making mistakes, without toppling over a few times. Get a bike that's as low to the ground as you can find Put on elbow and knee pads so you're not afraid of falling and go, he says. If you apply this mindset to everything new you attempt, you can begin to subvert the negative connotation associated with making mistakes. Says Andrew, you wouldn't say to somebody who is first learning to play the guitar, you better think really hard about where you put your fingers on the guitar neck before you strum because you only get to strum once and that's it. And if you get that wrong, we're going to move on. That's no way to learn, is it? This doesn't mean that Andrew enjoys it when he puts his work up for others to judge and it is found wanting. But he deals with the possibility of failure by addressing it head-on, searching for mechanisms that turn pain into progress. To be wrong as fast as you can is to sign up for aggressive, rapid learning. Andrew does this without hesitation. Even though people in our offices have heard Andrew say this repeatedly, many still miss the point. They think it means accept failure with dignity and move on. 
The better, more subtle interpretation is that failure is a manifestation of learning and exploration. If you aren't experiencing failure, then you are making a far worse mistake. You are being driven by the desire to avoid it. And for leaders especially, this strategy, trying to avoid failure by outthinking it, dooms you to fail. As Andrew puts it, moving things forward allows the team you are leading to feel like, oh, I'm on a boat that is actually going towards land, as opposed to having a leader who says, I'm still not sure. I'm going to look at the map a little bit more, and we're just going to float here, and all of you stop rowing until I figure this out. And then weeks go by, and morale plummets, and failure becomes self-fulfilling. People begin to treat the captain with doubt and trepidation. Even if their doubts aren't fully justified, you've become what they see you as because of your inability to move. Rejecting failure and avoiding mistakes seem like high-minded goals, but they are fundamentally misguided. Take something like the Golden Fleece Awards, which were established in 1975 to call attention to government-funded projects that were particularly egregious wastes of money. Among the winners were things like an $84,000 study on love commissioned by the National Science Foundation, and a $3,000 Department of Defense study that examined whether people in the military should carry umbrellas. While such scrutiny may have seemed like a good idea at the time, it had a chilling effect on research. No one wanted to win a Golden Fleece Award because, under the guise of avoiding waste, its organizers had inadvertently made it dangerous and embarrassing for everyone to make mistakes. The truth is, if you fund thousands of research projects every year, some will have obvious, measurable positive impacts, and others will go nowhere. We aren't very good at predicting the future. That's a given. And yet the Golden Fleece Awards tacitly implied that researchers should know before they do their research whether or not the results of that research would have value. Failure was being used as a weapon rather than as an agent of learning, and that had fallout. The fact that failing could earn you a very public flogging distorted the way researchers chose projects. The politics of failure, then, impeded our progress. There's a quick way to determine if your company has embraced the negative definition of failure. Ask yourself what happens when an error is discovered. Do people shut down and turn inward instead of coming together to untangle the causes of problems that might be avoided going forward? Is the question being asked, whose fault was this? If so, your culture is one that vilifies failure. Failure is difficult enough without it being compounded by the search for a scapegoat. In a fear-based, failure-averse culture, people will consciously or unconsciously avoid risk. They will seek instead to repeat something safe that's been good enough in the past. Their work will be derivative, not innovative. But if you can foster a positive understanding of failure, the opposite will happen. How, then, do you make failure into something people can face without fear? Part of the answer is simple. 
If we as leaders can talk about our mistakes and our part in them, then we make it safe for others. You don't run from it or pretend it doesn't exist. That is why I make a point of being open about our meltdowns inside Pixar, because I believe they teach us something important. Being open about problems is the first step toward learning from them. My goal is not to drive fear out completely, because fear is inevitable in high-stakes situations. What I want to do is loosen its grip on us. While we don't want too many failures, we must think of the cost of failure as an investment in the future. If you create a fearless culture, or as fearless as human nature will allow, people will be much less hesitant to explore new areas, identifying uncharted pathways, and then charging down them. They will also begin to see the upside of decisiveness. The time they've saved by not gnashing their teeth about whether they're on the right course comes in handy when they hit a dead end and need to reboot. It isn't enough to pick a path. You must go down it. By doing so, you see things you couldn't possibly see when you started out. You may not like what you see. Some of it may be confusing. But at least you will have, as we like to say, explored the neighborhood. The key point here is that even if you decide you're in the wrong place, there is still time to head toward the right place. And all the thinking you've done that led you down that alley was not wasted. Even if most of what you've seen doesn't fit your needs, you inevitably take away ideas that will prove useful. Relatedly, if there are parts of the neighborhood you like, but that don't seem helpful in the quest you're on, you will remember those parts and possibly use them later. Let me explain what I mean by exploring the neighborhood. Years before it evolved into the funny, affecting tale of a fierce, shaggy behemoth, Sully, and his unlikely friendship with the little girl it's his job to scare, Boo, Monsters, Inc. was an altogether different story. As first imagined by Pete Docter, it revolved around a 30-year-old man who was coping with a cast of frightening characters that only he could see. As Pete describes it, the man is an accountant or something, and he hates his job, and one day his mom gives him a book with some drawings in it that he did when he was a kid. He doesn't think anything of it, and he puts it on the shelf, and that night, monsters show up, and nobody else can see them. He thinks he's starting to go crazy. They follow him to his job and on his dates, and it turns out these monsters are all the fears that he never dealt with as a kid. He becomes friends with them eventually, and as he conquers the fears, they slowly begin to disappear. Anyone who's seen the movie knows that the final product bears no resemblance to that description. But what nobody knows is how many wrong turns the story took over a period of years before it found its true north. The pressure on Pete all along was enormous. Monsters, Inc. was the first Pixar film not directed by John Lasseter, so in some very real ways, Pete and his crew were under the microscope. Every unsuccessful attempt to crack the story only heightened the pressure. 
Fortunately, Pete had a basic concept that he held to throughout. Monsters are real and they scare kids for a living. But what was the strongest manifestation of that idea? He couldn't know until he'd tried a few options. At first, the human protagonist was a six-year-old named Mary. Then she was changed to a little boy. Then back to a six-year-old girl. Then she was seven, named Boo and bossy, even domineering. Finally, Boo was turned into a fearless, preverbal toddler. The idea of Sully's buddy character, the round, one-eyed Mike, voiced by Billy Crystal, wasn't added until more than a year after the first treatment was written. The process of determining the rules of the incredibly intricate world Pete created also took him down countless blind alleys until, eventually, those blind alleys converged on a path that led the story where it needed to go. The process of developing a story is one of discovery, Pete says. However, there's always a guiding principle that leads you as you go down the various roads. In Monsters, Inc., all of our very different plots shared a common feeling. The bittersweet goodbye you feel once a problem, in this case Sully's quest to return Boo to her own world, has been solved. You suffer through it as you struggle to solve it, but by the end you've developed a sort of fondness for it, and you miss it when it is gone. I knew I wanted to express that, and I was eventually able to get it in the film. While the process was difficult and time-consuming, Pete and his crew never believed that a failed approach meant that they had failed. Instead, they saw that each idea led them a bit closer to finding the better option. And that allowed them to come to work each day engaged and excited, even while in the midst of confusion. This is key. When experimentation is seen as necessary and productive, not as a frustrating waste of time, people will enjoy their work, even when it is confounding them. The principle I'm describing here, iterative trial and error, has long recognized value in science. When scientists have a question, they construct hypotheses, test them, analyze them, and draw conclusions, and then they do it all over again. The reasoning behind this is simple. Experiments are fact-finding missions that, over time, inch scientists toward greater understanding. That means any outcome is a good outcome because it yields new information. If your experiment proved your initial theory wrong, better to know it sooner rather than later. Armed with new facts, you can then reframe whatever question you're asking. This is often easier to accept in the laboratory than in a business. Creating art or developing new products in a for-profit context is complicated and expensive. In our case, when we try to tell the most compelling story, how do we assess our attempts and draw conclusions? How do we determine what works best? And how do we put the need to succeed out of our minds long enough to identify a true emotional storyline that will carry a film? There is an alternative approach to being wrong as fast as you can. It is the notion that if you carefully think everything through, 
If you are meticulous and plan well and consider all possible outcomes, you are more likely to create a lasting product. But I should caution that if you seek to plot out all your moves before you make them, if you put your faith in slow, deliberative planning in the hopes it will spare you failure down the line, well, you're deluding yourself. For one thing, it's easier to plan derivative work, things that copy or repeat something already out there. So if your primary goal is to have a fully worked out, set-in-stone plan, you are only upping your chances of being unoriginal. Moreover, you cannot plan your way out of problems. While planning is very important, and we do a lot of it, there is only so much you can control in a creative environment. In general, I have found that people who pour their energy into thinking about an approach and insisting that it is too early to act are wrong just as often as people who dive in and work quickly. The overplanners just take longer to be wrong, and when things inevitably go awry are more crushed by the feeling that they have failed. There's a corollary to this as well. The more time you spend mapping out an approach, the more likely you are to get attached to it. The non-working idea gets worn into your brain like a rut in the mud. It can be difficult to get free of it and head in a different direction, which, more often than not, is exactly what you must do. There are arenas, of course, in which a zero failure rate is essential. Commercial flying has a phenomenal safety record because there is so much attention paid at every level to removing error, from manufacturing the engines to assembling and maintaining the planes to observing safety checks and the rules that govern airspaces. Likewise, hospitals have elaborate safeguards to make sure that they operate on the right patient, on the correct side of the body, on the right organ, and so on. Banks have protocols to prevent errors. Manufacturing companies have a goal of eliminating production line errors. Many industries set goals of having zero injuries. But just because failure-free is crucial in some industries does not mean that it should be a goal in all of them. When it comes to creative endeavors, the concept of zero failures is worse than useless. It is counterproductive. To be sure, failure can be expensive. Making a bad product or suffering a major public setback damages your company's reputation and often your employees' morale. So we try to make it less expensive to fail, thereby taking some of the owners off it. For example, we've set up a system in which directors are allowed to spend years in the development phase of a movie where the costs of iteration and exploration are relatively low. At this point, we're paying the directors and story artists' salaries, but not putting anything into production, which is where costs explode. It's one thing to talk about the value of people encountering a number of small failures as they grope their way to understanding, but what about a big, catastrophic failure? What about a project you sink millions of dollars into, commit to publicly, and then have to walk away from? This happened on a film we were developing a few years back, which was based on a terrific idea that originated in the mind of one of our most creative and trusted colleagues, 
but notably one who had never directed a feature film before. He wanted to tell the story of what happens when the last remaining male and female blue-footed newts on the planet are forced together by science to save the species, but they can't stand each other. When he got up and pitched the idea, we were blown away. The story was, like Ratatouille, a somewhat challenging concept, but if handled the right way, we could see that it would be a phenomenal movie. Significantly, the pitch also came at a time when Jim Morris and I were thinking a lot about whether the success of Pixar was making us complacent. Among the questions we'd been asking ourselves and each other, had we, in the interest of governing production and making it efficient, created habits and rules that were unnecessary? Were we in danger of growing lethargic and setting our ways? Were our budgets on each movie inching higher and higher for no reason? We were looking for an opportunity to change it up, to create our own little startup within Pixar and yet separate from it, to try to tap back into the energy that permeated the place when we were young and small and striving. This project seemed to fit the bill. As we put it into production, we decided to treat it as an experiment. What if we brought in new people from the outside with fresh ideas, gave them the charter of rethinking the entire production process, and gave them experienced teammates to help carry this out, and then put them two blocks away from our main campus to minimize their contact with those who might encourage them to adopt the status quo? In addition to making a memorable movie, we were looking to challenge and improve our processes. We called the experiment the Incubator Project. Within Pixar, some expressed doubts about this approach, but the spirit behind it, the desire not to rest on our laurels, was appealing to all. Andrew Stanton told me later that he worried from the outset about how isolated the project's crew was even though it was by design. We were so enamored, he felt, of the possibilities of reinventing the wheel that we underestimated the impact of making so many changes at once. It was as if we'd picked four talented musicians, left them to their own devices, and hoped like hell they'd figure out how to be the Beatles. But we didn't see that clearly then. The idea for the movie was strong, which was confirmed when we unveiled it at a presentation for the media on upcoming Pixar and Disney movies. As the website Ain't It Cool News reported with enthusiasm, the main character, who'd been in captivity since he was a tadpole, lived in a cage in a lab where he could see a flowchart on the wall that spelled out the mating rituals of his species. Because he was lonely, he would practice the steps day in and day out, getting ready for scientists to capture him a girlfriend. Unfortunately, he couldn't read the ninth and final mating ritual because it was obscured by the lab's coffee machine. Therein lay the mystery. The presentation drew raves. It was classic Pixar, people gushed offbeat, witty, while at the same time tackling meaningful, relatable ideas. But within the production, unbeknownst to us, the story was stalled. It had the beginnings of a plot, 
Our hero gets his wish when scientists catch him a mate in the wild and bring her back to the lab. But when the unhappy couple ends up back in the natural world, the film began to fall apart. The movie was stuck, and even after a lot of thoughtful feedback, it wasn't getting better. That fact evaded us at first because of the separateness of the Enterprise. When we tried to assess how things were going, early reports seemed good. The director had a strong vision, and his crew was excited and working hard, but they didn't know what they didn't know, that the first two years of a movie's development should be a time of solidifying the story beats by relentlessly testing them, much like you temper steel, and that required decision-making, not just abstract discussion. While everyone working on it had the best intentions, it got bogged down in hypotheticals and possibilities. The bottom line was that while everyone was rowing the boat, to use Andrew's analogy, there was no forward movement. When we finally figured this out, after a few experienced Pixar people were sent in to help and reported back about what they saw, it was too late. The Pixar way is to invest in a singular vision, and we'd done so in a major way on this project. We didn't consider replacing the director. The story was his, and without him as the engine, we didn't think we could push it to completion. So in May 2010, with heavy hearts, we shut it down. There are some who will read this and conclude that putting this film into production in the first place was a mistake. An untested director, an unfinished script. It's easy to look back after the shutdown and say that those factors alone should have dissuaded us at the outset. But I disagree. While it cost us time and money to pursue, to my mind it was worth the investment. We learned better how to balance new ideas with old ideas and we learned that we had made a mistake in not getting very explicit buy-in from all of Pixar's leaders about the nature of what we were trying to do. These are lessons that would serve us very well later as we adopted new software and changed some of our technical processes. While experimentation is scary to many, I would argue that we should be far more terrified of the opposite approach, being too risk-averse causes many companies to stop innovating and to reject new ideas, which is the first step on the path to irrelevance. Probably more companies hit the skids for this reason than because they dared to push boundaries and take risks, and yes, to fail. To be a truly creative company, you must start things that might fail. For all this talk about accepting failure, if a movie or any creative endeavor isn't improving at a reasonable rate, there is a problem. If a director devises a series of solutions that are not making a movie better, one could come to the conclusion that he or she isn't right for the job, which is sometimes precisely the right conclusion to reach. But where to draw that line? How many errors are too many? When does failure go from a stop on the road to excellence to a red flag that signals change is needed? 
We put a lot of faith in our brain trust meetings to make sure that our directors get all the feedback and support they need, but there are problems that process can't fix. What do you do when candor is not enough? These were the questions we faced on our various meltdowns. We are a filmmaker-driven studio, which means that our goal is to let the creative people guide our projects. But when a movie gets stuck, and it becomes clear that not only is it broken, but its directors are at a loss as to how to fix it, we must replace them or shut the project down. You may ask, if it is true that all the movies suck at first and if Pixar's way is to give filmmakers, not the brain trust, the ultimate authority to fix what's broken, then how do you know when to step in? The criteria we use is that we step in if a director loses the confidence of his or her crew. About 300 people work on each Pixar movie, and they are used to endless adjustments and changes being made while the story is finding its feet. In general, movie crews are an understanding bunch. They recognize that there are always problems, so while they can be judgmental, they don't tend to rush to judgment. Their first impulse is to work harder. When a director stands up in a meeting and says, I realize this scene isn't working, I don't yet know how to fix it, but I'm figuring it out. Keep going. A crew will follow him or her to the ends of the earth. But when a problem is festering and everyone seems to be looking the other way, or when people are sitting around waiting to be told what to do, the crew gets antsy. It's not that they don't like the director, they usually do. It's that they lose confidence in the director's ability to bring the movie home, which is part of why, to me, they are the most reliable barometer. If the crew is confused, then their leader is too. When this happens, we must act. To know when to act, we must watch carefully for signs that a movie is stuck. Here's one. A brain trust meeting will occur, notes will be given, and three months later the movie will come back essentially unchanged. That is not okay. You may say, wait a minute, I thought you just said the directors didn't have to obey the notes. They don't. But directors must find ways to address problems that are raised by the group because the brain trust represents the audience. When they are confused or otherwise dissatisfied, there's a good chance moviegoers will be too. The implication of being director-led is that the director must lead. But any failure at a creative company is a failure of many, not one. If you're a leader of a company that is faltered, any misstep that occurs is yours as well. Moreover, if you don't use what's gone wrong to educate yourself and your colleagues, then you'll have missed an opportunity. There are two parts to any failure. There is the event itself, with all its attendant disappointment, confusion, and shame, and then there is our reaction to it. It is this second part that we control. Do we become introspective, or do we bury our heads in the sand? Do we make it safe for others to acknowledge and learn from problems? Or do we shut down discussion by looking for people to blame? 
we must remember that failure gives us chances to grow, and we ignore those chances at our own peril. Which raises the question, when failure occurs, how should you get the most out of it? When it came to our meltdowns, we were determined to look inward. We had picked talented, creative people to preside over these projects, so we clearly were doing something that was making it hard for them to succeed. Some worried the meltdowns were an indication that we were losing our touch. I disagreed. We never said it was going to be easy. We'd only insisted that our movies be great. Had we not stepped in and taken action, I said, then we'd be abandoning our values. After several misfires, though, it was important that we take a moment to reassess and try to absorb the lessons they had to teach us. So in March 2011, Jim Morris, Pixar's general manager, arranged an offsite with the studio's producers and directors, 20 or so people in all. On the agenda was one question. Why did we have so many meltdowns in a row? We weren't looking to point fingers. We wanted to rally the company's creative leadership to figure out the underlying problems that were leading us astray. Jim kicked the meeting off by thanking everyone for coming and reminding us why we were there. Nothing is more critical to our continued success as a studio, he said, than the ability to develop new projects and directors, and yet we were clearly doing something wrong. We had been trying to increase the number of movies we released, but we'd hit a roadblock. Over the next two days, he said, our goal was to figure out what was missing and to chart out ways to create it and put it in place. What became immediately apparent was that no one in the room was running from his or her role in these failures. They neither blamed the existing problems on others nor asked for someone else to solve them. The language they used to talk about the issues showed that they thought of them as their own. Is there a way other than Brain Trust notes that we could do a better job of teaching our directors the importance of an emotional arc? asked one person. I feel like I should be formally sharing my experience with other people, said another. I could not have been prouder. It was obvious that they felt they owned the problem and the responsibility for its solution. Even though we had serious problems, the culture of the place, the willingness to roll up our pant legs and wade into the muck for the good of the company, felt more alive than ever. As a team, we analyzed our assumptions, why we'd made such flawed choices. Were there essential qualities we needed to look for in our director candidates going forward that we'd overlooked in the past? More significantly, how had we failed to prepare new directors adequately for the daunting job they faced? How many times had we said, we won't let him or her fail, only to let them fail? We discussed how we had been blinded by the fact that the directors of our first films— John, Andrew, and Pete, had each figured out how to be a director without formal training, something that we now saw was much rarer than we'd previously believed. We'd talked about the fact that Andrew, Pete, and Lee had spent years working side-by-side side with John, absorbing his lessons, 
the need for decisiveness, for example, and his collaborative way of teasing out ideas. Andrew and Pete, the first directors at Pixar to follow in John's footsteps, had been challenged by the process but in the end had succeeded spectacularly. We assumed that others would do the same. But we had to face the fact that as we'd gotten bigger, our newer directors did not have the benefit of that experience. Then we turned to the future. We identified individuals who we thought had the potential to become directors, listing their strengths and weaknesses and being specific about what we would do to teach them, give them experience, and support them. In the wake of our failures, we still didn't want to make only safe choices going forward. We understood that taking creative and leadership risks is essential to who we are and that sometimes this means handing the keys to someone who may not fit the traditional conception of a movie director. And yet, as we made those unconventional choices, everyone agreed— we needed to outline better, more explicit steps to train and prepare those we felt had the necessary skills to make movies. Instead of hoping that our director candidates would absorb our shared wisdom through osmosis, we resolved to create a formal mentoring program that would, in a sense, give to others what Pete and Andrew and Lee had experienced working so closely with John in the early days. Going forward, Every established director would check in weekly with his mentees, giving them both practical and motivational advice as they developed ideas they hoped would become feature films. Later, when I was reflecting on the offsite with Andrew, he made what I think is a profound point. He told me that he thinks he and the other proven directors have a responsibility to be teachers that this should be a central part of their jobs, even as they continue to make their own films. The holy grail is to find a way that we can teach others how to make the best movie possible with whoever they've got on their crew, because it's just logic that someday we won't be here, he said. Walt Disney didn't do that, and without him, Disney Animation wasn't able to survive without enduring a decade and a half, if not two, of a slump. That's the real goal. Can we teach in a way that our directors will think smart when we're not around? Who better to teach than the most capable among us? And I'm not just talking about seminars or formal settings. Our actions and behaviors, for better or worse, teach those who admire and look up to us how to govern their own lives. Are we thoughtful about how people learn and grow? As leaders, we should think of ourselves as teachers and try to create companies in which teaching is seen as a valued way to contribute to the success of the whole. Do we think of most activities as teaching opportunities and experiences as ways of learning? One of the most crucial responsibilities of leadership is creating a culture that rewards those who lift not just our stock prices, but our aspirations as well. Discussing failure and all its ripple effects is not merely an academic exercise. We face it because by seeking better understanding, we remove barriers to full creative engagement. One of the biggest barriers is fear, 
and while failure comes with the territory, fear shouldn't have to. The goal, then, is to uncouple fear and failure, to create an environment in which making mistakes doesn't strike terror into your employees' hearts. How exactly do you do that? By necessity, the message companies send to their managers is conflicting. Develop your people, help them grow into strong contributors and team members, and, oh, by the way, make sure everything goes smoothly because there aren't enough resources and the success of our enterprise depends on your group doing its job on time and on budget. It is easy to be critical of the micromanaging many managers resort to. Yet we must acknowledge the rock and the hard place we often place them between. If they have to choose between meeting a deadline and some less well-defined mandate to nurture their people, they will pick the deadline every time. We tell ourselves that we will devote more time to our people if we, in turn, are given more slack in the schedule or budget, but somehow the requirements of the job always eat up the slack, resulting in increased pressure with even less room for error. Given these realities, managers typically want two things. One, for everything to be tightly controlled, and two, to appear to be in control. But when control is the goal, it can negatively affect other parts of your culture. I've known many managers who hate to be surprised in meetings, for example, by which I mean they make it clear that they want to be briefed about any unexpected news in advance and in private. In many workplaces, it is a sign of disrespect if someone surprises a manager with new information in front of other people. But what does this mean in practice? It means that there are pre-meetings before meetings and the meetings begin to take on a pro forma tone. It means wasted time. It means that the employees who work with these people walk on eggshells. It means that fear runs rampant. Getting middle managers to tolerate and not feel threatened by problems and surprises is one of our most important jobs. They already feel the weight of believing that if they screw up, there will be hell to pay. How do we get people to reframe the way they think about the process and the risks? The antidote to fear is trust, and we all have a desire to find something to trust in an uncertain world. Fear and trust are powerful forces, and while they are not opposites exactly, trust is the best tool for driving out fear. There will always be plenty to be afraid of, especially when you are doing something new. Trusting others doesn't mean that they won't make mistakes— it means that if they do, or if you do, you trust they will act to help solve it. Fear can be created quickly. Trust can't. Leaders must demonstrate their trustworthiness over time through their actions. And the best way to do that is by responding well to failure. The Brain Trust and various groups within Pixar have gone through difficult times together, solved problems together, and that is how they built up trust in each other. Be patient, be authentic, and be consistent. The trust will come. When I mention authenticity, I am referring to the way that managers level with their people. 
In many organizations, managers tend to err on the side of secrecy, of keeping things hidden from employees. I believe this is the wrong instinct. A manager's default mode should not be secrecy. What is needed is a thoughtful consideration of the cost of secrecy weighed against the risks. When you instantly resort to secrecy, you are telling people they can't be trusted. When you are candid, you are telling people that you trust them and that there is nothing to fear. To confide in employees is to give them a sense of ownership over the information. The result, and I've seen this again and again, is that they are less likely to leak whatever it is that you've confided. The people at Pixar have been extremely good at keeping secrets, which is crucial in a business whose profits depend on the strategic release of ideas or products when they are ready and not before. Since making movies is such a messy process, we need to be able to talk candidly among ourselves about the mess without having it shared outside the company. By sharing problems and sensitive issues with employees, we make them partners and part owners in our culture, and they do not want to let each other down. Your employees are smart. That's why you hired them. So treat them that way. They know when you deliver a message that has been heavily massaged. When managers explain what their plan is without giving the reasons for it, people wonder what the real agenda is. There may be no hidden agenda, but you've succeeded in implying that there is one. Discussing the thought processes behind solutions aims the focus on the solutions, not on second-guessing. When we are honest, people know it. Pixar's head of management development, Jamie Wolfe, put together a mentoring program that pairs new managers with experienced ones. A key facet of this program is that mentors and mentees work together for an extended period of time, eight months. They meet about all aspects of leadership, from career development and confidence building to managing personnel challenges and building healthy team environments. The purposes are to cultivate deep connections and to have a place to share fears and challenges, exploring the skills of managing others by wrestling together with real problems, whether they be external, a volatile supervisor, or internal, an overly active inner critic. In other words, to develop a sense of trust. While I work with a couple of mentees, I also speak every year to the entire group. In this talk, I tell the story of how, when I was first a manager at New York Tech, I didn't feel like a manager at all. And while I liked the idea of being in charge, I went to work every day feeling like something of a fraud. Even in the early years of Pixar, when I was the president, that feeling didn't go away. I knew many presidents of other companies and had a good idea of their personality characteristics. They were aggressive and extremely confident. Knowing that I didn't share many of those traits, again I felt like a fraud. In truth, I was afraid of failure. Not until about eight or nine years ago, I tell them, did the imposter feeling finally go away. I have several things to thank for that evolution. 
My experience of both weathering our failures and watching our film succeed, my decisions post-Toy Story to recommit myself to Pixar and its culture, and my enjoyment of my maturing relationship with Stephen John. Then, after fessing up, I asked the group, how many of you feel like a fraud? And without fail, every hand in the room shoots up. As managers, we all start off with a certain amount of trepidation. When we are new to the position, we imagine what the job is in order to get our arms around it. Then we compare ourselves against our made-up model. But the job is never what we think it is. The trick is to forget our models about what we should be. A better measure of our success is to look at the people on our team and see how they are working together. Can they rally to solve key problems? If the answer is yes, you are managing well. This phenomenon of not perceiving correctly what our job is occurs frequently with new directors. Even if a person works side-by-side -side with an experienced director in a supporting role, a role in which they repeatedly demonstrate the abilities to take the reins on their own film, when they actually get the job, it isn't quite what they thought it was. There is something scary about discovering that they have responsibilities that were not part of their mental model. In the case of first-time directors, the weight of those responsibilities is not only new, it is further amplified by the track record of our previous films. Every director at Pixar worries that his or her movie will be the one that fails, that breaks our streak of number one hits. That pressure is there. You can't be the first bomb, says Bob Peterson, a longtime Pixar writer and voice artist. What you want is for that pressure to light a fire under you to make you say, I'm going to do better. But there's a fear of not knowing if you can find the right answer. The directors here who are successful are able to just relax and let ideas be born out of that pressure. Bob jokes that to relieve that pressure, Pixar should intentionally do a bad film just to correct the market. Of course, we'd never set out to make something terrible, but Bob's idea is thought-provoking. Are there ways to prove to your employees that your company doesn't stigmatize failure? All of this attention on not only allowing but even expecting errors has helped make Pixar a unique culture. For proof of just how unique, consider the example of Toy Story 3 once again. As I said at the start of this chapter, this was the only Pixar production during which we didn't have a major crisis, and after the film came out, I repeatedly said so in public, lauding its crew for racking up not a single disaster during the film's gestation. You might imagine that the Toy Story 3 crew would have been happy when I said this, but you'd imagine wrong. So ingrained are the beliefs I've been describing about failure at Pixar that the people who worked on Toy Story 3 were actually offended by my remarks. They interpreted them to mean that they hadn't tried as hard as their colleagues on other films, that they hadn't pushed themselves enough. That isn't at all what I meant, but I have to admit I was thrilled by their reaction. I saw it as proof that our culture is healthy. As Andrew Stanton puts it, 
It's gotten to the point that we get worried if a film is not a problem child right away. It makes us nervous. We've come to recognize the signs of invention, of dealing with originality. We have begun to welcome the feeling of, oh, we've never had this exact problem before and it's incredibly recalcitrant and won't do what we want it to do. That's familiar territory for us, in a good way. Rather than trying to prevent all errors, we should assume, as is almost always the case, that our people's intentions are good and that they want to solve problems. Give them responsibility, let the mistakes happen, and let people fix them. If there is fear, there is a reason. Our job is to find the reason and to remedy it. Management's job is not to prevent risk, but to build the ability to recover. Chapter 7 The Hungry Beast and the Ugly Baby During the late 1980s and early 1990s, as an ascendant Disney animation was enjoying a remarkable string of hit films, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King... I began to hear a phrase being used again and again in the executive suites of its Burbank headquarters. You've got to feed the beast. As you may recall, Pixar had entered into a contract to write a graphics system for Disney, the Computer Animation Production System, or CAPS, that would paint and manage animation cells. We began working on CAPS while Disney was producing The Little Mermaid. So I had a front-row seat from which to view the way that film's success led to the studio's expansion and to its need for more film projects to justify and occupy the growing staff. In other words, I was there to witness the creation of Disney's Beast. And by Beast, I mean any large group that needs to be fed an uninterrupted diet of new material and resources in order to function. I should say that none of this was happening by accident or for the wrong reasons. The Walt Disney Company's CEO, Michael Eisner, and the studio's chairman, Jeffrey Katzenberg, had committed to reviving animation after the long fallow period that followed Walt's death. To their credit, the result was an artistic flourishing that drew on the talents of legendary artists who'd been at the studio for decades, as well as the fresh thinking of more recent hires. The films they produced not only were huge economic drivers for the company, but they immediately became iconic in the popular culture and, in turn, prompted the animation explosion that would ultimately enable Pixar to make Toy Story. But the success of each new Disney film also did something else. It created a hunger for more. As the infrastructure of the studio grew to service, market, and promote each successful film, the need for more product in the pipeline only expanded. The stakes were simply too high to let all those employees at all those desks and all those buildings sit idle. If you'd asked around Disney at the time, you would have had trouble finding someone who believed that animated storytelling was a product that could or should be made on an assembly line, even though the term Feed the Beast has that very idea embedded in it. 
In fact, the intentions and values of the high-caliber people working in production were surely admirable. But the beast is powerful and can overwhelm even the most dedicated individuals. As Disney expanded its release schedule, its need for output increased to the point that it opened animation studios in Burbank, Florida, France, and Australia just to keep up with its appetites. The pressure to create, and quickly, became the order of the day. To be clear, this happens at many companies, not just in Hollywood, and its unintended effect is always the same. It lessens quality across the board. After The Lion King was released in 1994, eventually grossing $952 million worldwide, the studio began its slow decline. It was hard at first to deduce why. There had been some leadership changes, yet the bulk of the people were still there, and they still had the talent and the desire to do great work. Nevertheless, the drought that was beginning then would last for the next 16 years. From 1994 to 2010, not a single Disney animated film would open at number one at the box office. I believe this was the direct result of its employees thinking that their job was to feed the beast. Seeing even the earliest manifestation of this trend at Disney, I felt an urgency to understand the hidden factors that were behind it. Why? Because I sensed that if we continued to be successful, whatever was happening at Disney Animation would almost certainly happen to us, too. Originality is fragile, and in its first moments, it's often far from pretty. That is why I call early mock-ups of our films ugly babies. They are not beautiful miniature versions of the adults they will grow up to be. They are truly ugly, awkward and unformed, vulnerable and incomplete. They need nurturing in the form of time and patience in order to grow. What this means is that they have a hard time coexisting with the beast. The ugly baby idea is not easy to accept. Having seen and enjoyed Pixar movies, many people assume that they popped into the world already striking, resonant, and meaningful. Fully grown, if you will. In fact, getting them to that point involved months, if not years, of work. If you sat down and watched the early reels of any of our films, the ugliness would be painfully clear. But the natural impulse is to compare the early reels of our films to finished films, by which I mean to hold the new to standards only the mature can meet. Our job is to protect our babies from being judged too quickly. Our job is to protect the new. Before I go on, I want to say something about the word protection. I worry that because it has such a positive connotation, by implication, anything being protected seems, ipso facto, worth protecting. But that's not always the case. Sometimes within Pixar, for example, production tries to protect processes that are comfortable and familiar, but that don't make sense. 
legal departments are famous for being overly cautious in the name of protecting their companies from possible external threats. People in bureaucracies often seek to protect the status quo. Protection is used in these contexts to further a small-c conservative agenda. Don't disrupt what already is. As a business becomes successful, meanwhile, that conservatism gains strength and inordinate energy is directed toward protecting what has worked so far. When I advocate for protecting the new, then, I am using the word somewhat differently. I am saying that when someone hatches an original idea, it may be ungainly and poorly defined, but it is also the opposite of established and entrenched, and that is precisely what is most exciting about it. If, while in this vulnerable state, it is exposed to naysayers who fail to see its potential or lack the patience to let it evolve, it could be destroyed. Part of our job is to protect the new from people who don't understand that in order for greatness to emerge, there must be phases of not-so-greatness. Think of a caterpillar morphing into a butterfly. It only survives because it is encased in a cocoon. It survives, in other words, because it is protected from that which would damage it. It is protected from the beast. Pixar's first battle with the beast came in 1999, after we'd released two successful films and were putting what we hoped would be our fifth movie, Finding Nemo, into production. I remember Andrew Stanton's initial pitch about Marlin, an overprotective clownfish and his search for Nemo, his abducted son. It was a brisk day in October, and we had gathered in a crowded conference room to hear Andrew talk through his story beats. His presentation was nothing short of magnificent. The narrative, as he described it, would be intercut with a series of flashbacks that explained what had happened to make Nemo's father such an overprotective worrywart when it came to his son. Nemo's mother and siblings, Andrew said, had been slain by a barracuda. Standing there in the front of the room, Andrew seamlessly wove together two stories— what was happening in Marlin's world during the epic search he undertakes after Nemo is scooped up by a scuba diver, and what was happening in the aquarium in Sydney where Nemo had ended up with a group of tropical fish called the Tank Gang. The tale Andrew wanted to tell got to the heart of the struggle for independence that often shapes the father-son relationship. And what's more, it was funny. When Andrew finished his pitch, those of us in attendance were silent for a moment. Then John Lasseter spoke for all of us when he said, You had me at the word fish. At this point, the specter of Toy Story 2, which had taken such a devastating toll on our employees, still loomed large in our memories. Stretched to the breaking point, we'd emerged from that film with a clear understanding that what we had gone through was not healthy for our employees or our business. We had vowed not to repeat those mistakes on Monsters, Inc., and for the most part, we hadn't. But our determination on that front also meant that Monsters, Inc. ended up taking nearly five years to make. 
In the wake of that, we were actively looking for ways to improve and speed up our process. In this, we were driven by a particular observation. It was obvious to us that a large portion of our cost stemmed from the fact that we never seemed to stop tinkering with the scripts of our movies, even long after we started making them. It didn't take a genius to see that if we could only settle on the story early on, our movies would be much easier and thus cheaper to make. This then became our goal. Finalize the script before we start making the film. After Andrew's tour de force pitch, Finding Nemo seemed like the perfect project with which to test our new theory. As we gave Andrew the go-ahead, we were confident that locking in the story early would yield not just a phenomenal movie, but a cost-efficient production. Looking back, I realized we weren't just trying to be more efficient. We were hoping to avoid the messy and at times uncomfortable part of the creative process. We were trying to eliminate errors, and in so doing, to efficiently feed our beast. Of course, it was not to be. All those flashbacks that we'd loved in Andrew's pitch? They proved confusing when we saw them on early reels. In a brain trust meeting, Lee Unkrich was the first to call them cryptic and impressionistic, and he lobbied for a more linear storytelling structure. When Andrew tried it, an unexpected benefit emerged. Before, Marlin had come off as unsympathetic and unlikable because it took too long to find out the reason he was being such a smothering father. Now, with a more chronological approach, Marlin was more appealing and sympathetic. Moreover, Andrew found that his intention to weave together two concurrent storylines, the action in the ocean versus the action in the aquarium, was far more complicated than he had imagined. The tale of the tank gang, originally intended as a major through-line, became a subplot, and those were just two of many difficult changes that were made during the production as unforeseen problems presented themselves, and our goal of a predetermined story and a streamlined production fell apart. Despite our hopes that Finding Nemo would be the film that changed the way we did business, we ended up making as many adjustments during production as we had on any other film we had made. The result, of course, was a movie we're incredibly proud of, one that went on to become the second-highest-grossing film of 2003 and the highest-grossing animated film ever. The only thing it didn't do was transform our production process. My conclusion at the time was that finalizing the story before production began was still a worthy goal. We just hadn't achieved it yet. As we continued to make films, however, I came to believe that my goal was not just impractical but naive. By insisting on the importance of getting our ducks in a row early, we had come perilously close to embracing a fallacy. Making the process better, easier, and cheaper is an important aspiration, something we continually work on. But it is not the goal. Making something great is the goal. I see this over and over again in other companies. 
a subversion takes place in which streamlining the process or increasing production supplants the ultimate goal, with each person or group thinking they're doing the right thing, when, in fact, they have strayed off course. When efficiency or consistency of workflow are not balanced by other equally strong countervailing forces, the result is that new ideas, our ugly babies, aren't afforded the attention and protection they need to shine and mature. They are abandoned or never conceived of in the first place. Emphasis is placed on doing safer projects that mimic proven moneymakers just to keep something, anything, moving through the pipeline. See The Lion King One and a Half, a directive video effort that came out in 2004, six years after The Lion King Two, Simba's Pride. This kind of thinking yields predictable, unoriginal fare because it prevents the kind of organic ferment that fuels true inspiration. But it does feed the beast. When I talk about the beast and the baby, it can seem very black and white, that the beast is all bad and the baby is all good. The truth is, reality lies somewhere in between. The beast is a glutton, but also a valuable motivator. The baby is so pure and unsullied, so full of potential, but it's also needy and unpredictable and can keep you up at night. The key is for your beast and your babies to coexist peacefully, and that requires that you keep various forces in balance. How do we balance these forces that seem so at odds? especially when it always appears to be such an unfair fight? The needs of the beast seem to trump the needs of the baby every time, given that the baby's true worth is often unknown or in doubt and can remain so for months on end. How do we hold off the beast, curbing its appetites without putting our companies in jeopardy? Because every company needs its beast— the beast's hunger translates into deadlines and urgency. That's a good thing, as long as the beast is kept in its place. And that's the tough part. Many talk of the beast as if it is a greedy, unthinking creature, insistent and beyond our control. But in fact, any group that produces a product or drives revenue could be considered to be part of the beast including marketing and distribution. Each group operates according to its own logic, and many have neither the responsibility for the quality of what is produced nor a good understanding of their own impact on that quality. It simply isn't their problem. Keeping the process going and the money flowing is. Each group has its own goals and expectations and acts according to its own appetites. In many businesses, the beast requires so much attention that it acquires inordinate power. The reason. It is expensive, accounting for the vast majority of most companies' costs. Any company's profit margin depends in large part on how effectively it uses its people. The auto workers on the assembly line who are being paid whether the line is in motion or not the stock boys in Amazon's warehouses who come to work regardless of how many shoppers are online that day, 
the lighting and shading experts to pick one of dozens of examples in the world of animation, who must wait for many others to complete their duties on a particular shot before they can begin to do their work. If inefficiencies result in anyone waiting for too long, if the majority of your people aren't engaged in the work that drives your revenue most of the time, you risk being devoured from the inside out. The solution, of course, is to feed the beast, to occupy its time and attention, putting its talents to use. Even when you do that, though, the beast cannot be sated. It is one of life's cruel ironies that when it comes to feeding the beast, success only creates more pressure to hurry up and succeed again, which is why at too many companies the schedule, that is, the need for product, drives the output, not the strength of the ideas at the front end. I want to be careful not to imply that it is the individual people who comprise the beast who are the problem. They are doing the best they can to accomplish what they've been charged with doing. Despite good intentions, the result is troubling. Feeding the beast becomes the central focus. The beast thrives not only within animation or movie companies, of course. No creative business is immune from technology to publishing to manufacturing. But all beasts have one thing in common. Frequently, the people in charge of the beast are the most organized people in the company, people wired to make things happen on track and on budget as their bosses expect them to do. When those people and their interests become too powerful, when there is not sufficient pushback to protect new ideas, things go wrong. The beast takes over. The key to preventing this is balance. I see the give-and-take between different constituencies in a business as central to its success. So when I talk about taming the beast, what I really mean is that keeping its needs balanced with the needs of other, more creative facets of your company will make you stronger. Let me give you an example of what I mean, drawn from the business I know best. In animation, we have many constituencies, story, art, budget, technology, finance, production, marketing, and consumer products. The people within each constituency have priorities that are important and often opposing. The writer and director want to tell the most affecting story possible. The production designer wants the film to look beautiful. The technical directors want flawless effects. Finance wants to keep the budgets within limits. Marketing wants a hook that is easily sold to potential viewers. The consumer products people want appealing characters to turn into plush toys and to plaster on lunchboxes and T-shirts. The production managers try to keep everyone happy and to keep the whole enterprise from spiraling out of control. And so on. Each group is focused on its own needs, which means that no one has a clear view of how their decisions impact other groups. Each group is under pressure to perform well, which means achieving stated goals. Particularly in the early months of a project, these goals, which are sub-goals really in the making of a film, are often easier to articulate and explain than the film itself. 
But if the director is able to get everything he or she wants, we will likely end up with a film that's too long. If the marketing people get their way, we will only make a film that mimics those that have already been proven to succeed. In other words, familiar to viewers, but in all likelihood a creative failure. Each group, then, is trying to do the right thing, but they're pulling in different directions. If any one of those groups wins, we lose.